We're going to continue with our Connected series this morning by talking about neighbors. Some of you may be familiar with a social media site uh, slash app called Nextdoor. Uh, The idea behind Nextdoor is that you can communicate with your neighbors online, and maybe not just your neighbors on your street, but those people who live in your broader neighborhood and the neighborhoods nearby. So it's the type of place, if your dog ran away, you can get on there and you can post, my dog ran away, has anybody seen him? Or if you don't like dogs running through the neighborhood, a lot of people get on and say, please keep your dogs from running away, those types of things. Uh, People post, hey, could you help me find a mechanic? Whatever it is, it's the types of things that people used to talk to each other about before we had the internet. So you can go on and you can talk about things with your neighbors. Well, I found a couple of months ago, there's a Twitter feed in which a woman gathers what she calls the best of next door. And uh, what she means really is the worst of next door, those moments where it kind of derailed, where people got hostile or uh, upset or confused. And so she just posts them in this feed. I'm going to share just a few of my favorites with you this morning. This person says, please help. I'm out of butter. Please drop a stick at the corner of, and then list the corner, between 2 and 4 a.m. today on Sunday. I don't want to meet people. I don't want new friends. I just need butter. Butter is important to me. That is the uh, antisocial neighbor. I don't actually want to meet anybody. I just want you to give me some butter. Uh, This one, somebody posted this note that a friendly neighbor left on their door. Quit slamming your car doors late at night. There's a noise ordinance, stupid neighbors. Right? So they escalated from like zero to 150 in terms of the agitation level right away. What I found interesting about this is the person who received this note, instead of going to talk to the individual who probably lives next door or across the street, they posted it on next door to get everybody to shame them. Uh, Here was another one, uh, illegal Chinese New Year fireworks. Don't forget to report your neighbors using illegal fireworks this Chinese New Year. Uh, the, The reply here is my favorite. Wow, it truly is the year of the rat. I love that. So you have, you have now hostile neighbors, you have nosy neighbors, you have neighbors who are antisocial. Uh, these are the worst of the conversations that we tend to have with our neighbors, especially when we're hiding behind a screen or a phone and we figure they can't see my face and I can't see their face. We all know on some level what a bad neighbor looks like. We're going to talk this morning about what a good neighbor looks like. What does it mean to be a good neighbor? For some of us, we may say, you know what? A good neighbor to me is just somebody who will mow their lawn regularly, keep the trash off their property. They don't make noise late at night. They basically stay out of my way. For some of us, that may be the epitome of a good neighbor. We're going to ask this morning, as followers of Jesus Christ, though, is there more to it? If I want to be a good neighbor to those not only on my street, not only in my immediate neighborhood, but actually in my community, if I want to be a neighbor in the pattern of the love and the compassion and the kindness and the justice of God, what does that look like? We cannot define neighbor for the purposes of this morning. We cannot define neighbor simply as those people who live right next to us. And we're going to see this as we walk throughout our passage for the morning. But here's why. Uh, No doubt you and I interact 
locally on a day-to-day basis, not only with the people who live on our, on our street or on our block, but if your kids go to school, they are interacting with other kids who live on other streets, in other neighborhoods. And so, in a sense, those people are your neighbors. If you go to a store or a restaurant, the people who are there that you interact with and engage with and, and stand next to in line, those people live in your community and they are your neighbors. If you go to an office for a job, if you go to a class for school, those people sitting next to you who live in your community, those people would be biblically defined as our neighbors. And the question we're going to look at this morning is, what does it look like to be a neighbor in the pattern of Jesus Christ? If you were to ask Jesus, what does it mean for me to be that kind of a good neighbor, both to those on my street and those in my community? How can I be a neighbor as a follower of Jesus Christ who reflects you? What does that look like? That's what we're going to talk about this morning. And the really good news is Jesus answered that question very clearly in one of his most famous parables, a parable that even if you have some passing familiarity with the Bible, or even not, you've probably heard of. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan. If you have a Bible, we're going to be in Luke chapter 10 for pretty much the entire morning. You may want to get there in your Bible or if you've got it on your phone, Luke chapter 10. I'll read it from up here, but we're going to be looking at this parable of the Good Samaritan. It's the answer to to the question, Jesus answered the question, what does it mean to be a neighbor who honors God in my community where I live? That's the question. And, And what we'll see in Jesus' day The issues that people faced in the first century in Israel, in some ways they were very different from the issues that we face. But in other ways, they were the same. Just like in our day, in Jesus' day, there were racial and ethnic divisions between people. People struggled with things like racism and wanting to wall themselves off in their own little group. There were political divisions. There were different political factions, even in Jesus' day, that divided people. There were cultural divisions. There were religious divisions. So, just like today, you had all of these divisions, often all of these groups living side by side in the same community. And so, one of the questions that comes up is, how do we live together? And for those of us who know Jesus especially, How do we become neighbors who reflect his character and and help draw people to see and know the love and the grace and the kindness and the justice of God? That's what we're going to look at this morning. So I'm going to begin with Luke chapter 10. I'm going to start in verse 25. If you've got your Bible, follow along with me. Luke 10, starting in verse 25. And a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So so our story this morning starts with a lawyer who gets up and he asks Jesus a question. Question is this, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Let me break down for a minute. Who is this guy and why is he asking this question? It says he's a lawyer. Now, in the first century in Israel, a lawyer didn't do quite the same things that you might think of a lawyer doing today. Particularly in the nation of Israel, for for many, many years of their history, there wasn't a huge distinction between the law of the government 
and the law of the Bible. For Israelites, for a long time, they were one and the same until other nations began to conquer the nation of Israel. But in the first century, even though they are being ruled by Rome, Jews are still thinking this way. The law of our government is the law of God. It's the law of Moses that we see in the Old Testament. So who was a lawyer? A lawyer was a Pharisee. He was a religious leader who spent almost all of his time interpreting and reading the Old Testament law. This guy's entire job on behalf of the nation of Israel was to say, here's what the law says you can do, here's what the law says you can't do, here's what the law says you need to do in order to please God. He is asking a central question that rabbis and Pharisees and teachers and lawyers like this debated all the time. What do I have to do to receive eternal life. And when he's thinking of eternal life, he's thinking one day the Messiah, God's king, is going to come. He is going to establish a forever kingdom for the people of Israel. And Daniel 12, 2 says that when that day comes, here's what Daniel uh, says. He says, many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these two everlasting or eternal life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. So he's going, when, when we all wake up, and the Messiah is here, right? And he may not even believe at this point, probably doesn't, that Jesus is the Messiah. But he says, when that day comes, how can I be one of those people who wakes up and is a part of the kingdom? How can I have eternal life? And notice he says, what do I have to do in order to get there? And Jesus says, well, you're the lawyer. You tell me. And the guy answers, by going back to the book of Leviticus, he says, look, as far as I understand, you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, love God completely and love your neighbor selflessly. And Jesus says, two thumbs up. That's it. You do that and you will live. Now, at this point, the man has a problem. And here's the problem. That's too hard. Because when you and I think about what Jesus is saying and what the law is saying, you need to love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. How many of you in this room do that? I'm guessing zero. Is there some part of you, at least some part of you, that say, I, I love other things sometimes more than I love God? I don't always love God with every part of me 100%. How many of you would truly say that you love your neighbor as yourself, that you think about your neighbor's needs, those around you, you think about their needs every bit as much as you think about your own needs? If you're honest, the proportions are not equal, are they? So this guy has a problem. He's got the same problem we all have. He can't do it. Okay, I, this reminds me of like when I was in my 20s. I think I was 23. I sat down with a financial advisor, and I don't remember how much money my wife and I were making at the time, like 12 bucks a week or something like that. I mean, it was very, very, very small. And this guy goes, look, if you want to be able to retire with like certain amount of millions in the bank, you need to start today saving $250 a month. And I thought, man, that's practically speaking impossible at this moment in time. You might as well say something like this. If you would like to fly to Europe for free, all you need to do is be good friends with a billionaire who owns a jet who will fly you there. Right? Theoretically possible. 
but not practically possible for me because of the limitations I have. Theoretically, is there a person out there who can love God with all their heart, all their soul, all their mind, all their strength? Well, when God gave the law, he says, hey, you can do this. It's not too high. It's not that complicated. It's not way down in the depths of the earth. You can love God. You can love their neighbor. Theoretically, could somebody do this? Well, Jesus did it. He had the advantage of of being God. But for you and me, on a practical level, this is really, really hard. So, So at this moment, here's the dilemma this guy has. He should have stopped at this moment and realized that Jesus was doing something Jesus often does, which is he is ratcheting up the standard of righteousness. Here's what Jesus is saying. If you want to be declared righteous before God, here's the standard. He does it in the Sermon on the Mount. He begins, he goes, look, if you want to be a part of the kingdom, you want to inherit the kingdom of God, same question. Your righteousness has to exceed that of the Pharisees and the scribes. Now, if you're hearing that, you're going to go, I might as well go home. Because the Pharisees and the scribes spent all of their time thinking about how to be righteous. That's like all they did because they didn't have other jobs. And so they would spend all of this time thinking about this. And and Jesus goes, you got to ratchet it way up here. He goes, look, if you hate someone in your heart, that's where murder starts. Right? The standard doesn't just begin externally. The standard begins in here. And as you read the Sermon on the Mount, you begin to increase in despair. I can't do this. I can't do this. And so this lawyer should have paused and said, well, Jesus, I, I, I recognize I can't do this. I violate the law. I need something else. I need a greater righteousness. And the answer, of course, for him and for us is Jesus would say, that's why I came. I came to give you that righteousness. Jesus would die for our sin. Jesus would rise from the dead so that anybody who believes in Jesus will be given his righteousness before God. So that you no longer have to try to earn your way into God's favor. Right? But the lawyer isn't ready to believe in Jesus. He's not ready to humble himself at this moment. So what he does is he changes the conversation. And he asks another question. He says, hey, uh, who is my neighbor? Now, verse 28 excuse me, verse 29, it says, but wishing to justify himself. He said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In other words, what does it mean to justify yourself? Well, I want to be declared good, righteous. I want to be able to say that I've met all my obligations before God. He says, I want to do this myself. I want to, on my own, achieve the righteousness of God. So he goes, who is my neighbor? Why does he ask that? This is a weasel question. Okay, the reason he asks this question is because he's trying to move the goalposts a little bit to say, okay, I know that I probably don't fully love my neighbor, at least everybody in my community, as well as I should. So let me ask this question. If I can tightly define who my neighbor is, if my neighbor is only those in my family, maybe people I like, if I define my neighbor as people I like, then I'm good, right? I can love my neighbor as myself if it's the people that I want to love. This is like if you ask your kids or you say to your kids, hey, before you go outside and play, you must clean your room. And some of, some of you, I know we have, have actually had your kids ask this question, how clean? What do you mean by clean? What is the definition of the word clean? Because when I was a kid, uh, for me, clean often meant I can just put it all in my closet and just pray that nobody ever looked in there and I would never go in there again, right? That would be that would be clean, right? Or you might say, before you can have dessert, you need to clean your plate. You need to clean your plate. And they go, well, there are many ways to clean my plate. For example, 
the dog is under the table. The dog could help me clean my plate. So what is the standard of clean? Do I have to eat all the broccoli? Uh, We've actually had kids go, how many bites of the broccoli do I need to eat? And how big do the bites need to be? Right? So this is, this is the kind of parsing. And of course, you always go, look, just, just live within the spirit of it. Eat as many bites of broccoli as you are going to eat until I say that the standard has been met. Okay, this lawyer, is, it's a weasel question. He's saying, how much do I have to love, love my neighbor? Because if it's, if it's this selfless love for everybody in my community, then I fail. And so in response, Jesus says this. Essentially, he says, okay, let me tell you a story. And so Jesus, like he often does, by the way, Jesus um, never answers a question directly. He either will ask you another question or he will begin to tell a story. Okay, so here Jesus begins to tell a story. Verse 30, Jesus replied and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. So, You have a guy in Israel, he's going between Jerusalem where the temple is and Jericho. It's about a 17-mile journey, and it's a dangerous road. It's, It's kind of a mountain pass type of road, and there are little caves dotted along the road where bandits would hide. So if you're by yourself, this is a bad place to be, and so this guy is walking by himself along this road, and just what you would expect, bandits run out from one of those caves, they take all of his money and his stuff, and they beat him up. And they leave him for dead on the side of the road. This is a first century carjacking. And then they run away into the desert where nobody can find them. It happened all the time on this road. So here he is. He's in desperate need of some help. Clearly he's been beaten to the point that he can't get up. And so Jesus goes on and he says, And by chance a priest was going down on that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Okay, so Jesus starts very optimistically. He goes, it just so happens, folks, that a priest is going by. Now, if you're listening to this, you go, that's fantastic news, because if anybody's going to help him, it's going to be the priest. Why? Because priests spend their time in the worship of God. They're in the, the temple every single day, offering sacrifices, They're near the presence of God. They're near the Ark of the Covenant. They see the high priest. They understand the law probably better than anybody. They understand the heart of God, that God is a compassionate and merciful and gracious God. They are called to represent the character of God, not only in Israel, but to all the nations. These are good guys. So you go, man, what luck. The first person to come by isn't another bandit, but it's a priest. And everybody goes, he's saved. But Jesus says the priest, he doesn't just ignore the guy. He actually moves all the way to the other side of the road to get away from him. And we don't know why. Jesus doesn't tell us why specifically. Could have been a lot of reasons. The priest could have been afraid of becoming ceremonially unclean. Because if this guy dies while the priest is helping him, the priest touches him, he becomes defiled. He has to go do a bunch of washing. It's very inconvenient. It could take a lot of time. So he may not have wanted to get involved for that way, for that reason. But it also could be that he's just, it's time, it's money. His security would be at risk while he's on the side of the road helping this guy. We don't know why. But for whatever reason, he sees this guy, he goes, "Mm, not my neighbor, right? And he walks around. That's all right, because we still have another chance. Verse 32, likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Who's a Levite? Levites are like the second best to a priest. If you can't have a priest, 
get a Levite. Levites, they, they took care of all of the items in the temple. You know, the, the lampstands and the altars and the bowls and all these things. Levite's job was basically to attend to all of the stuff in and surrounding the temple courts. These were holy guys. These were good guys. Again, they're near the presence of God. They're helping people worship. And yet he does the same thing. Not my neighbor. And then Jesus goes on. And there's a third guy. It says, but a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him. Now, if you're listening to this as a Jew in the first century, it's important to understand in most stories, the Samaritan would be the bad guy. We, we have become accustomed to hearing the phrase good Samaritan in our culture. And so we think often of a good Samaritan as a good guy. The Samaritan typically would be the bad guy in the story. There's a couple of times Samaritans pop up in the ministry of Jesus. Probably the other one that's most famous is John chapter 4. Jesus is passing through Samaria and he meets this woman at the well. Remember at Jacob's well. She's a Samaritan. And you remember, she's very confused both about her own personal righteousness. She's had a rough life. Uh, She is also confused about the law. She believes that they ought to be worshiping at Mount Gerizim instead of in Jerusalem where, where the Scripture says they ought to worship. So, Samaritans are not only religious heretics, but they're also ethnically different from the Jews. The reason they're ethnically different is because about seven or 800 years before the time of Christ, the Assyrians had come in and they had conquered the northern ten tribes in Israel. And one of the things that the Assyrians did when they conquered an area was instead of killing everybody, they said, we'll just make them intermarry with us and intermarry with the nations that surround them. So these Jews in the northern kingdoms of Israel, the northern tribes, they had intermarried with the Assyrians, with the Canaanites, which God had told them not to do. So over time, they they became known as both racial half-breeds and heretics and pagans and culturally distinct from the Jews. They were hated. Flavius Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, had this to say about Samaritans. He said, when the Samaritans see the Jews in prosperity, they pretend that they are allied to them and call them kinsmen as though they were derived from Joseph. But when they see them falling into a low condition, they say they are no way related to them, and that the Jews have no right to expect any kindness or marks of kindred from them. So we've got somebody coming along. He's from a group of people that he's ethnically different, he's religiously different, he's culturally different, and and Samaritans had a reputation for basically being a fair-weather friend. In other words, if you're on the side of the road, don't call a Samaritan. Call a priest. Call a Levite. So this is all in their minds. Jesus says a Samaritan came upon him, but look what happens. When he saw him, he felt compassion. Notice that the Samaritan, he sees him, and instead of passing by, he feels something. Literally, his insides move. He feels compassion for this guy. Out of that feeling of compassion, then he does something. He came to him. He bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. The oil would have been a a way to soothe the wound, and the wine would have been a way to disinfect the wound. He takes his own supplies, and he puts him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, so we, we see that he postpones his journey, and he stays with the guy for the night. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. 
Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? So Jesus ultimately says, okay, I'm going to tell you a story. And here's the essence of the story. The problem you have is this. You're asking the wrong question. Who is my neighbor is the wrong question. The right question is, how can I be a neighbor to somebody who's in need? Not who is my neighbor, not how tightly can I define the circle, but instead, how can I reflect the heart of God by being a neighbor? Let me, for just a moment, retell the story in a way that might make a little more sense to our modern ears. Okay, you ready? So, got a little story for you, Ags. I've always wanted to say that. I've always had these yell leader dreams. Um, Never succeeded. Okay, got a little story for you, Ags. It's the weekend of the Texas A&M Alabama game. Everybody's excited because they know that we are going to, and I'm not going to say it here, but we're definitely going to beat them badly. And so everybody's on their way to the game. But on the way to the game, one of the Aggies, he gets carjacked. And the thieves take his car and they beat him within an inch of his life and they leave him lying on Texas Avenue. And he's in a desperate situation. But, but here's the good news. First person to drive by is a pastor on his way to prepare for his sermon. In fact, it's your pastor. It's me. I'm the first person to drive by. And I see him, and I know he needs help. But I'm preaching tomorrow on the Good Samaritan, and I have to get to church. So I zip by him, and I leave him there. That's all right. All hope is not lost. The second person who comes by is an Aggie yell leader. The epitome of Aggie spirit and kindness. He has been trained since he was an infant to embody the Aggie spirit. It's in his blood, it's in his heart, it's in his brain. But here's the problem. He thinks, man, I've got this, this white uniform. It is totally fresh and clean. I just pressed it and had it dry clean. If I get on the side of the road, then I'm gonna have to go and lead yells covered in blood and I'll freak everyone out. So he turns down a side street and he goes along his way to get to the stadium. But then the third person right behind the yell leader to come by is a dirty, scraggly T-sip commie. He just drove in from Austin. And we don't know why he stops, but he sees the guy and he feels something for the guy. He feels some compassion for the guy. So he pulls over in his Toyota Prius and he gets into the glove compartment And he grabs his first aid kit and he begins to bandage the guy's wounds and he helps him and he gets him into his car. And then he remembers that just before he left Austin, he bought a quinoa tofu rice bowl from Whole Foods. And so he gives it to the guy so that he can have some food to eat. And then he takes him to the nearest hospital and he spends the night. He postpones his own trip to Cuba to meet with the Castro family so that he can spend time with this guy overnight. And then he wakes up the next morning and he says, why don't you send, he says to the hospital, why don't you send all the bills to me, but please send them digitally because I don't want to waste any paper or kill any trees, right? (laughs) Okay, that's the essence of what Jesus is getting at. The two people that you think, man, these folks are the most likely to stop. The ones that they've been trained since they were little to understand who is God? What is God asking of us? 
And why is God asking us to be a neighbor like this? Because remember, the nation of Israel was called to be what? A kingdom of priests. I don't think it's any accident that a priest shows up first. What were priests meant to do? They were meant to facilitate the worship of God. Why? So that all of the nations, we talked about this last week, all of the nations would see and understand who God is and they would stream to Him. And what Jesus is saying is if you want to be a person who reflects the character of God, This is what it looks like. And where we're going to land, of course, again, is the only way that we are capable of doing this is through the power of God's Spirit. And the only way we receive God's Spirit is if we trust in Jesus Christ. See, the lawyer is still just thinking, how can I earn eternal life? How can I be declared righteous? And Jesus says, I want you to think totally differently that what you're called to do is you come to me and I will bridge the gap between your sin and God's righteousness. And then when the Spirit of God comes and begins to move in your heart and in your spirit, I will empower you to reflect God's character. So Jesus says, this is what I want you to do. And he tells this man, he says, hey, which one of them was the neighbor to the man in need? And I love the lawyer's response. He can't even say the Samaritan. He won't even say it. He goes, the guy who helped him, right? Because he knows the right answer, but he doesn't like the answer because it makes him deeply uncomfortable. And Jesus says, you go and do the same thing. If you really want to be a person who reflects the character of God, not in order to inherit eternal life, but because God in His grace has given you a kingdom, has given you life, you go and do likewise, so that all the nations will stream to His light. Those who are in need spiritually, physically, emotionally, mentally, they will see a God who meets their needs through us. And so where this parable leads us is this. What kind of neighbor are you? What kind of neighbor are you? And of course, only you before God really know the answer to that. But here's what I think Jesus would, would ask us. Are you the type of person who you have, you have created a life such that you never really have to see and acknowledge the needs of those, not only on your street, but in your community? Have you so filled your time? Have I so filled my time? Have I so created a life where I can drive to and from work day after day, and I might drive right past people who are in desperate need? But I've created a life where I don't have to see it, where I don't have to feel compassion, where I tell myself, ah, I'm just too busy. I've got somewhere to be. Back in the 1970s, there was a famous social experiment done at Princeton uh, University. It was, it was done actually at the seminary with seminary students. And here's what they did. They would get one of these seminary students, somebody training for the ministry, And they would pull them into a room and they would ask them a bunch of questions about their belief system. At the time, Princeton was probably a mixed bag between theologically conservative and theologically liberal. So they would ask them different questions. What do you believe about the Bible? Why are you going into ministry? A lot of them said, I'm going into ministry to preach the gospel. Some of them said to help people, whatever it was. They would ask them this questionnaire and then they would say, the second part of this assignment is that you need to prepare a short devotional on the subject of Luke 10, on the the parable of the Good Samaritan. When it's ready, you need to take your talk and you're going to walk from this building you're in now to another building across campus where you will deliver your speech for a grade. 
So they would prepare it and they'd, they'd begin to go. And, and what the experimenters did is in between building one and building two, they placed an actor. And the guy had, looked like he had been beaten up and he was lying in an alley between the two buildings and he was moaning. And they put fake blood on him and the whole deal. I mean, he looked really in bad shape. The trick was in order to get from building one to building two and get across this alley, you literally had to step over the guy. You couldn't walk around. You couldn't avoid him. And they said, let's just see how many of these seminary students who have just studied the parable of the Good Samaritan will stop. And here's what they found. About 40% of them stopped. About 60% of them uh, did not, which is bad enough in and of itself. But the biggest distinction between those who stopped and those who did not stop, it was not what they wrote down on the belief survey. Instead, it was this. Some of these students, when they left the first building, they said, you've got plenty of time. Uh, Take your time. Others, they said, yeah, you're on time, but you, you probably need to go straight there. And then others, they said, you are running behind. You need to hustle. The biggest distinction between those who stopped and those who didn't stop was that of the ones who were out of time, only 10% stopped. Of the ones who felt they had plenty of time, somewhere around 60 or 70% stopped. And I thought about that as I was thinking about this passage this week, because I, I do think that one of the biggest enemies to neighborliness is busyness. We have so constructed our lives that we uh, we are packed from one thing to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next. And so there's no time, even if there's a need right in our community. For some of us, I think, and I was convicted about this this week, I, I know of times when there have been needs right in front of me. I'm at a store or a shop, somebody's crying, somebody needs help, but I got somewhere to be because I packed myself really tight. And what Jesus would say is, are we willing to create some margin to step into those moments? About 20 years after that original experiment, ABC News repeated the experiment, and I've seen the video of this, and they basically found the same thing. Time pressure definitely affects how willing we are to help people right in front of us who have a need. But they added another variable that I found interesting. Uh, And that is they had two actors that they used uh, with different people. Sometimes they had a white man, and sometimes they used a black man. Both dressed the same, both with short, neat haircuts. They both basically looked the same, except one was a white man, one was a black man. And what they found was that people stopped to help the white man three times more often than they stopped to help the black man. And the reason I share that, even as I share that, it makes some of us uncomfortable. But I share it because it's relevant to the heart also of what Jesus is saying. Remember, the Samaritan was the least likely person to stop. Why? He was racially different from the guy on the side of the road. He was religiously different. He was culturally different. And frankly, Jews were really not nice to Samaritans. This guy had every reason to walk on the other side of the road. But instead, in imitation of the character of God, he gets down. To reflect God's character. And so Jesus is saying to this guy, what kind of neighbor are you? Are you and I the kinds of people who reflect the character of Jesus Christ because of what Jesus did for us? Because he crossed boundaries. He crossed space and time. He came to us when we were the one in deep spiritual and emotional and physical need headed for death and headed for hell. 
Are you and I that type of neighbor? Or have we so tightly defined our lives that we would say, ah, you know what, it's not that I ignore needs right in front of me, I just don't ever really see it. And I think as I read this parable, Jesus would say to us, well then open your eyes. They're all around you. You may have to even adjust your life. Go to some places you might not normally go. Eat at some places you might not normally eat. Open up a conversation with somebody that you might normally avoid. Let me offer as we close just a few practical thoughts about how we can apply what Jesus is saying. First one is this. I just said, open your eyes. Open your eyes. As I was talking about this passage with a friend this week, he said he knew a woman who used to wake up in the morning and and she would say, God, I, I just ask that today you would open up my eyes to the needs that you want me to step into, the needs you want me to meet. Now, she was busy, just like we're busy. She had a full calendar. She had stuff to do. She had a job, the whole thing. But she said, when I encounter a need, would you allow me to have the obedience to you to to step into that, even if it means that I might be late for the next thing? Even if it means that I might miss something else that is coming? I knew this woman, and I would regularly see her sitting and counseling with somebody in deep emotional, spiritual pain who knew that she would listen and who knew that her agenda would not trump their need. Will we open our eyes? I promise you there are people even that live on your street, and you probably know who some of them are, that they feel like they're drowning, and they're looking for somebody to hear them and to see them and to feel compassion. And there are certainly people in our community. So open our eyes. Secondly, create some margin. Create some margin. I don't know what this looks like for you. I don't know if you need to sit down with with your calendar or with your spouse in the calendar. I don't know what it looks like, but begin to create some margin. If you find that, that every time you see somebody in need, whether it's a person who needs help on the side of the road, literally, or whether it's a person who wants to talk about Jesus or some things going on in their heart, if every time that happens, you, just, you, you have to look at the watch and go, I got to go, then it may be you need to create some margin. And I, I, I don't want to, there, there's a tension here as well, because I know even as I say this, there are some, some people in the room, you're already prone to taking on everybody's needs. You hear this and you say, I have, to, I have to meet every need I ever see, right? So I'm never going to sleep. I'm never going to eat, right? If you do that, you will die young. You cannot be Jesus. You cannot fix the world. You cannot save everybody. But I think for most of us, what we do is we book our lives so tight and we build our worlds so tightly that we don't have space if a need presents itself. I think that's probably a more common issue. And I don't want to fully resolve that tension for us because we, we need to follow the voice of the Spirit. But, but, but what I'm saying is this, can we create some margin where we can say, I don't always feel this pressure to get to the next thing if the Spirit is prompting me to speak, prompting me to engage. Create some margin. And then lastly, you can't do everything, but do something. Do something. There are needs in our community, uh, both on your street, but also across town. 
Let me offer a few just real practical ways in which you can, you can serve the community as a neighbor who reflects the heart of Jesus. Um, I'm going to give a couple of practical ways based on some of our community partners. Uh, you can go down to the bridge on Tuesday or Thursday. The bridge is a, a local organization that distributes boxes of food once a week to those in need. You can go out on Tuesday afternoon. Uh, we've been out there with our kids a few times. You can help pack the boxes. You can go out on Thursday night if you work until 5 or whatever. You can actually go out there 5.30, I think it is, Thursday night, and you can help distribute the boxes. You can be a part of engaging not only in helping to meet somebody's physical needs, but also to engage people with the love of Jesus and with the gospel because there are opportunities down there where they present the gospel to men and women who are in need. Uh, Aggieland Pregnancy Outreach on Thursday nights. They have a great outreach called the Mama Club. Um, the, the volunteers they need are not just women. They also need male volunteers because if there is a baby that is on the way, there often is a father as well who needs care and prayer. And so there are opportunities for men and for women to serve out there. Uh, everything from helping to talk to people who find themselves in a difficult situation to literally serving food or helping pack boxes, or whatever it is that they need. There are many opportunities. You can find that information on our website, on the community partner section of our website. And then thirdly, I'd say this, go talk to your actual neighbors. I don't, I don't know about you, but uh, it's quite frequent that I, I will go a week and I go, man, all I've really ever seen is garage doors opening and closing and cars coming out. I, I may know when somebody got a new vehicle, but not uh, when they had a baby, right? A new child. So uh, the reality is that all too often we're going from place to place to place to place, and somebody literally living on our street might be in deep need to hear the gospel. They might be in deep need for somebody to hear them. And I, I would encourage you, if you're able... Spend some time out in the front of your house. As you go down to get your mail, go work in the yard and walk over and connect with your neighbors if you can. I realize some of them will probably think you're trying to sell them something and they'll run into the house in fear. That's okay. Keep trying a few times. People aren't used to it. But right in our neighborhoods and right in our communities, can we engage in a way that reflects the heart of Jesus Christ? who came to find us when we were in our deepest need. That's what Jesus says it means to be a neighbor. That anyone in my path whose need I can meet is my neighbor. And I'm called to be a neighbor in imitation of Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful for your word, and we are grateful for the love of your son Jesus, who died and rose again so that we can have eternal life. Father, I pray that we would live by the power of your Holy Spirit in imitation of Jesus. We know that there's nothing we can do to earn eternal life, but we pray that we would reflect you because you've given it to us, and we, we want others to see who you are and to receive eternal life. Father, give us strength from your Spirit. Open our eyes and teach us to be like you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.